0: Good morning, Georgetown. Uh, I should sound super magical and amazing this morning because I get to use Robin's headset now. This is something else, I'm telling you. I have for years had this headset with Scotch tape on it. I know you couldn't hear the difference, but every time I put it on, I was like, I like saving money. I, I do, I like it. Okay, so we're gonna turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 11, uh, chapter 18 in Hebrews chapter... Five. I'm gonna tell you all of those again so you don't have to memorize them all. And they'll be on the screen. But the first place I'll be is Hebrews chapter five. If you can imagine walking into a house, you walk into the front door, let's say it's a house you're familiar with, and so you can just walk in the front door because no one answers when you knock. You walk in the front door and in the, uh, the living room, there's a baby laying in the floor. There's no adults to be found anywhere. There's a baby laying in the floor and there's a bottle of milk laying next to the baby. And you would be thinking, Probably the same thing you'd be thinking. If you were at the park, say, sitting on a bench and a parent drove by, they stopped the car close to the playground, but really not at the playground, and they got out and they unbuckled their toddler and they set him outside the car, closed the door, got back in their car and said, see you in an hour. You would be thinking probably the same thing you'd be thinking if you uh, saw your neighbor walk their five-year-old up to the bus for like the second week of school, and they put him on the bus and said, remember the frozen pizzas and nuggies? See you Friday. Like, in every one of those cases, that's completely insane to think that that person is going to be able to take care of himself. And the point being, whenever we're physically immature, it's so easy to see because the person is probably very small. But when we're spiritually immature, it's much more difficult to be able to tell that. I say this because... Two weeks ago, we talked about the baptisms, the life that came from death. The life that came from the death of the coach of that football team that was baptized. And all of the life that's coming from the death that people at Pirates Cove decided they were gonna give their life to Jesus. And just the same way that at Georgetown Christian, In the last three months, we've baptized nine, and this year we've baptized 11, who right here in this baptistry said, I'm going to be buried with Jesus Christ in death and raised to a brand new life. And so the question then is, how do we begin spiritually maturing? How do we begin growing up into the likeness of Jesus? How do we become more of the church that God envisions for this uh, larger community outside these walls and for the gathered community that is here each time we get together. And the question is particularly difficult because we live in a digital age. So a digital age, if I had to describe it, to put us all on the same page, a digital age is one that you can scroll, it's one that you can swipe, it's one that you can feel. I want everybody, if you're familiar with air quotes, I want you all to get your air quotes out and quote with me. Uh, get your air quotes out. Get ready. Now put them down. Get ready. Something as simple as a filter or a false motive or maybe an exhilarating little 20-second video snippet can move followers to, all together, say, action. Action. But the problem is that sometimes in a digital age, sometimes that action looks like this. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm old, so mine does look like this. Do you do that? Do you hold it with one hand and swipe it with the other? If you're younger, it probably looks like this. And that's the only action that there is. And we mistake that that action for an actual change. That's why we have to say action. Because in a digital age, you can ask AI, how does a new Christian become a mature Christian? And ChatGPT 3.5 gave me a list of 12 or 13 things that I had planned to talk about in this series. But you know what ChatGPT cannot do? It cannot put into practice that list of things. So we live in a digital age where it feels like swiping and tapping is action. But that's living a filtered, false life. That's why I believe that ancient ways are the things that we need to discover, the things that we need to unlock, the things that we need to put into practice to turn it into a habit, to make it a routine part of our lives that we may grow from being an infant to being more and more mature in Christ. Hebrews writer in chapter 12 says, This is probably written in some of the locker rooms. No discipline seems present at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There is not a digital solution for spiritual maturity, but there are practices or habits. There's a path that the ancients have developed that we can follow to grow in maturity, and the first step on that path is to get into a baptistry similar to this one, to be buried with Christ in death and raised to new life. The uh, The second step is then to decide, every single day, I'm gonna take the same next step that looks like me dying to my preferences. It looks like me dying to myself. It looks a lot like me saying, I'm going to follow what the Lord has for my life instead of what I would prefer for my life. Now, after those two basics, together we can begin to walk toward maturity. Imagine, if you will for a second, that you, that you walk into, um, let's say, the church nursery, and you see a bunch of babies with a bunch of bottles, and they're all there, and they can't get the bottle to their mouth any human with a heart is going to walk in and they're going to step right up to the task of putting the bottle in the mouth of the baby because you can clearly see the need. But when it's spiritual, maybe you're even willing to teach and you don't know. Now imagine this. You're at a restaurant with maybe your spouse and family and and in come another couple and the timer's going because you're wondering where your food is. They come in, they sit down, you notice that it's some parents with their child and the child's spouse, and you're wondering when their food's gonna arrive. Well, you get yours first and you're relieved, but then they get theirs and something curious begins to happen because they've ordered the steak that you were considering and so you're keyed in. But then as the child of those adult parents, this is a fully grown, child that is, it's an adult, fully capable, but refuses to touch their fork or knife. So spouse or, or mom or dad come over and cut that steak that you wish you ordered, cut that steak and put it in that person's mouth. Would you not have a brain that was just going like, what is happening here? What is going on? you would be enraged. You need to feed yourself. Would you not say, Georgetown, you need to feed yourself? I'm pretty sure you would agree. Well, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 12. In fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The believers in this case have remained willfully ignorant. They have seen the truth. They have trusted Jesus as their Savior because nobody wants to go to hell. So they've trusted Jesus as their Savior, fire insurance. But Lord, uh, sounds like he might have some control in my life. Maybe they're not willing yet to trust him as Lord consistently. Let's go on and see verse 11. Let's look at their character. We have much to say about this, the writer says, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. The believers in this case are unwilling to try. They sit at the table as a fully capable adult and will not touch the fork or the knife. They demand that another teacher in the church come by and cut their food and put it in their delicate little mouth. Somebody else has to do it for them because they lack the effort to understand what is being explained to them, why. The writer continues in verse 13. Anyone who loves milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Infant Christians are not yet acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But in verse 12, it's made clear to us that there are another kind of Christian. And the other kind of Christian is one who began their life in Christ, claimed Jesus as Savior, and put Lord on pause, because dying to self is difficult. So in verse 12, remember, verse 12, in fact, though by this time, You ought to be teachers. What's the cause of this? What's the cause? In verse 14 we see the cause. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use, I want you to read this with me now, who by constant use, Georgetown, we're all going to read this together, by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So they've trained themselves, they've picked up the fork and the knife, and they have failed their way through not cutting the steak well. And if you are like me, I remember flicking a large piece of meat off of my plate at one point, practicing with a knife and thinking, this is not going like it's supposed to go. Does that mean that you give up and quit and stop and don't try anymore? By God's grace, I've learned to cut steak. It means it goes in my mouth and it's delicious. And who would want to miss out on the steak? Almost lunchtime, I'll stop with the references for food for at least four more minutes. So witnessed by scripture now, we can see that the church, a church that is less than 100 years from the foundation of the church, is now receiving a letter that says that among you, there are Christians who you maybe can't see, like physically you could see a baby laying on the floor with a bottle, but you have spiritual babies who ought to be what, Georgetown? What should they be by now? They should be teachers. They should be grown and mature. They should be way past milk. But it is true then from the very earliest church that there are both kinds of Christians. There are new Christians and there are immature Christians and both kinds of Christians along with mature Christians all need to grow in our likeness of Christ So Georgetown, I'm going to to covenant with you. I hope you covenant with me and many of you have through Membership 101 and Maturity 201. I'm gonna covenant with you to to make sure that by God's grace, we're not going to stand before a judge, an eternal creator, ruler, sustainer of the breath you're breathing. We're not gonna stand before him with beards and baby bottles. But we're gonna stand before him together as disciplers. And trust me, we'll not be looking over our shoulder to see what's going on. We'll, we'll have fixed eyes at this time. But I bet that later we're going to get to at some point look over our shoulder and see a disciple of someone who decided to trust Jesus and to follow him because of our willingness to disciple them. And you know what you're, you're also going to see? Behind that person, you're going to see the faces of people that you have no idea who they are because a disciple makes a disciple that makes a disciple. So there's going to be a whole line of people that you'll never have known because of your willingness to not stand before our judge with beards and bottles because that would look a little weird. So how do we then mature? How do we mature from babies or from immature Christians into mature believers, into growing in our Christ-likeness. We're looking at an ancient way today called prayer, and we're looking at two teachings of Jesus on prayer. The first teaching, his framework for prayer. The second teaching is a recurring teaching. Taught tons of things about prayer. But I can't talk for seven hours, so we're going to just talk about one of the things that pervaded Jesus' teaching on prayer. So a framework And then something he talked about repeatedly. Jesus assumed that we would be praying. He did this because when he came in the flesh, for over 2,000 years before Jesus came to earth in the flesh, uh, just five examples. Ancients that predated Jesus' incarnation. Adam and Eve were praying every day. They were walking in the garden with the Lord until sin separated them, Adam and Eve, every day. Abraham. His prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah indicated that in prayer, before Jesus came as a man, that people were persistent. Abraham prayed on behalf of these two towns. Jacob prayed for mercy. God, please have mercy. I'm going to meet my brother Esau, and I stole his inheritance. Please have mercy on me, and please let him have mercy on me. Prayers for mercy. We see prayers for blessing when Hannah couldn't have a child. God, please bless me with a child. And she's blessed, and Israel is blessed with Samuel, so prayer is asking for blessing. And then David, who's anointed by Samuel, we have an entire book of prayers and songs written by David recorded now in our Psalms. Those prayers are characterized by repentance. They're characterized by adoration, praising God for who He is. They're characterized by uh, asking God to smite His enemies, to eliminate them. They're characterized by repentance. So Jesus comes to a group of believers who may have the history of already praying. Jesus assumes that we're praying, but he taught an ancient way. Because these people for thousands of years before came in the flesh were praying powerful and persistent prayers. So Jesus then, when his disciples asked, he gives a tool. Now I first want you to hear the tool. And I'm going to ask you, to analyze the way that we respond to hearing the tool. The tool is the Lord's Prayer, one with which I'm sure you're familiar. So let's read it together. I will read it to you. You don't need to read it out loud. Luke 11. If you're following in your own Bibles, I'm now in Luke 11. We'll be there for a while. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And, and he said to them, when you pray say father hallowed be your name your kingdom come give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation now immediately I think I know where your mind is going I'm not sure but now the pastor is supposed to increase your knowledge about what Jesus just taught about prayer. In the Western church, it would be the substance of the rest of the sermon to know more about what it means to say that God's name is hallowed. It means holy. Period. It means God's holy. As we consider how to approach Jesus' teaching on prayer, we have a fork in the road. I want to describe two forks, which are two ways... two ways we can respond to Jesus' teaching on prayer. So one road offers us this opportunity that, in my opinion, is the way that we are trained to think just by the culture we live in. And that way is to examine. That way is to exegete. That way is to to discover Jesus' words as a specimen that must be studied. It's maybe a teaching that needs dissecting. And it needs drawn out. And we need to hear big, big church words that make every one of us feel smarter and think that something's changing because in our brains, little neurons fired. And they passed a neurosynapsis and the protein traveled across that synapsis and we lit up a little path and got a tiny little dopamine hit. That is not discipleship. I actually read to you discipleship this morning. when We were singing, Jesus said that obeying, what I said to do, is discipleship. Not having a tantalizing conversation about the theory of what it might look like to actually obey. Uh, For instance, this week in the Tanner House, uh, Noah is in charge of the garbage and Micah is in charge of the dog. The dog needs to do the things dogs do outside and the dog needs food and water and grace is in charge of dishes. They should be clean and put away. So very clear instructions for everyone. Now imagine coming to dinner at our house, we invite you over and we're gonna have something very healthy, I'm sure, and you sit down to eat at the table and the plate is dirty and the forks and knives are dirty and the glasses are dirty and at the table where we're about to eat the food on the dirty plates, with the dirty silverware and the dirty cups, Noah, Micah, and Grace begin discussing the best kind of garbage bag while the garbage is overflowing and the dog is eating out of it. And Micah is pontificating about the dog's age and the best kind of food for a dog of this age. And Grace, is eating off a dirty plate discussing the best kinds of soap for cleaning the dishes. And it's glaringly obvious what I'm talking about. They've entirely failed to execute. The second path we'll discuss. They've entirely failed to execute, but have they examined? Have they studied? Have they even talked about it in our presence? So church, how good will it be for us then to study the Lord's Prayer some more, to wear out a path that is so worn that it looks like the right way, to go down and just to pick it apart and to look at it and to find a new meaning. How important is is that verses? what I believe is the proper way to approach Jesus' teaching on prayer, the second way. I think the second way is that Jesus' teaching is an invitation for us to practice, to practice prayer, is to execute the teaching that he's given us. Uh, And we'll see Jesus' teaching in just a second. We'll go through Jesus' teaching, and I'll show you why I think that Jesus likes this path, the one that is execute. And I don't think that we need to continually execute ignorance, which is why Jesus agreed to give instruction on prayer. So I'm going to give instruction on prayer. And I think that there's enough in these two models for prayer uh, that we can, like Jesus' disciples, grow up into maturity, praying as we should pray, like maturing Christians but not perfect Christians. I think that these two plans for prayer are adequate to move us down the path of maturity instead of building a library on the other path where you just sit and examine it and never execute it. So, so two models and raise your hands if you guys use this one. Did any of you ever use Acts, the Acts model of prayer? Okay. so. That's impressive, especially if you used it for more than a day and a half. Because you're like, adoration, I adore you, God, and I know what confession is. I was wrong, please forgive me. Uh, Here are the ways I was wrong. Thanksgiving, totally got this one. God, thank you uh, for all of the blessings and supplication. Well, I guess I'm just gonna pray act because I don't remember what supplication is unless you've been under a great teacher for a long time. That one is not my favorite, so I wanna show you my favorite. Uh, I told you I wouldn't talk about food for four minutes. But now we're going to talk about tacos. So I think that this is representative of the teaching that we have from Jesus. That is, thanksgiving. Applause. That's a great way to think of adoration. This isn't even a word that you're using unless maybe you're married or hoping that you're married and you get a card at Valentine's Day, and then maybe you'll see that word. But applause. You want to praise God for who he is. Confession, you wanna ask for forgiveness of the sin that you're aware of in your life and ask that God would show you what you're not aware of that you may confess and repent of that. You wanna pray for others, you wanna pray for yourself. That's that word supplication, you're asking. And then you wanna sit in silence because we wanna walk in step with the Spirit. So prayer isn't all about our just talking, it's also about our listening. Okay, that is, I think, all the teaching that you need on prayer right now to begin practicing. So here's why I think that because sometimes our battle is to not just mount up more and more knowledge to, as Paul says, get puffed up with it, but to put it into practice. Uh, Here's why I think in a digital age uh, an acceptable solution is to begin to practice and instead of to... Pretend that knowledge is action. Remember what the writer said to the Hebrews in chapter 5. I want you to read it with me. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So this is the key to an ancient path that we can walk and it is not, it is not knowledge, but it is the use, the practice of what we now know to do. Here's why I think that's what Jesus would mean. I'm in verse five of Luke chapter 11. Now you see, if you agree with me, I think that Jesus chooses the path of practice versus the path of perfect theology. You see if you agree with me. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is shut and my children are in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence or his audacity or his persistence, his willing to come to the door at midnight and not stop asking, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, now allow me to contextualize this. Jesus just Taught the Lord's Prayer. We would call it the Lord's Prayer. His disciples would think he is the Lord and he just taught us on prayer. This is the same gospel author, Luke, who's writing. Right after Jesus teaches them how to pray, he goes on to say these words. Verse 9, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think it's clear from Jesus' consistent teaching that the ancient way is to pray, to pray persistently, not to wait for perfect theology. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus continues, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, not give up, not become discouraged and quit. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, Show she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And here's how Jesus applies that parable. His disciples don't have time to ask, what do you mean? Please explain. Jesus goes on to explain immediately. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He's not asking, Will he find perfect theology? Will he find people who can sit at the table and examine the best trash bag, the best dog food, and the best dish detergent? But will he find people who faithfully practice prayer? Jesus believed practice made perfect. Not study, not examination. Persistence over perfection. See verses 7 and 8. Just one last reminder before we close. As we look at this, is there anything here where it looks like God was waiting for them to say exactly the right words in the taco, acts, Lord's Prayer order or to say it just right (laughs) word? Or was it God will give justice to his elect who cry to him, day and night. Will he find faith on earth? Is he looking for perfect theology? Is he looking for Christians who have every little answer figured out before they move on the path to maturity in Christ? Jesus' teaching is clearly about our persistence in prayer his heart. Immediately after teaching how to pray, he goes on and teaches to pray persistently. Now, if you've been a a believer that gathers as a part of the body of Georgetown Christian for, let's say, a year or two, then you've sat under faithful teaching. You have traveled the knowledge path. If you've placed yourself under the teaching of an elective leader or of a women's or men's study under Gwen Hartman or Doug Melton or maybe you've been in Mike Hartman's class or Aaron Striegel or Kurt Huntley. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been in class for decades here. Maybe you were in a class with Bob Fogg or Jim Mitchell or Paul Rhodes, who for decades, people like Doug Melton, Roy, McLean and Robin Tyler taught that path of knowledge and encouraged you to then walk down the path of practice. If you've been here that long and you find that you're still a bearded baby bottle holder, it is time to begin practicing. No more worrying about perfect theology. Begin practicing the ancient way of prayer persistently I wanna close with a story about Hudson Taylor. He was a founder of China Inland Mission, and that was the late 19th century, like 1865, 75-ish. But in 1830, his father became convicted that China could no longer live as a country without the hope of Jesus brought to those people. So he began to pray, that his son, Hudson Taylor, may be that man to carry God's word to that nation. Hudson writes this uh, at about the time that he was 15. He and his friends were committed skeptics in spite of his rearing in a Christian home. Of his conversion, he writes, uh, and here's some old language for you. One day, which I shall never forget, when I was about 15, my dear mother being absent from home some 80 miles away, which 1865, horses, maybe buggies, 80 miles is really far. My dear mother being absent from home some 80 miles, I had a holiday. I had vacation, I had free time. I searched through the library for a book to while away time. I selected a gospel tract, which looked unattractive, saying, well, there'll be an interesting story at the commencement and a sermon or moral at the end. I'll take the former and leave the latter for those who like it. I little knew what was going on in the heart of my dear mother. She arose 80 miles away from the dinner table with an intense yearning for the conversion of my own heart. And feeling that, being far from home, having more leisure time than she normally would, there was a special opportunity afforded to her to pray for my soul. So she went to the bedroom where she stayed, she turned the key in the door, and she resolved not to leave the room until it was in praise to God for converting my soul. Hour after hour after hour did my mother plead until eventually those prayers did turn to praise. In the meantime, as I was reading the tract, the finished work of Christ... A light was flashed into my soul by the Holy Spirit. There was nothing to be done but to fall on my knees and accept this Savior and His salvation and to spend my life praising God forevermore. I was praising Him in the warehouse while my mother was praising her in a bedroom 80 miles away. I met my mother at the door on her return two weeks later with the glad news. She said, I know, my boy, I've been rejoicing the whole way here. Many souls are lost. Much maturity is missed because we fail to take the ancient path of practicing prayer persistently. Would you bow your heads? Maybe you're a new believer and today's the first day you've ever seen taco prayer or acts prayer maybe the first day you've ever heard the Lord's Prayer in your life, I encourage you today to begin practicing what you right now understand as the way to pray. And if you have a question, I am here to answer that question or find someone that knows. If you have a question, we have a Next Steps ministry that wants to help you take that next step in maturity, in growing up into the likeness of Christ. Uh, For the, the others, maybe there are those who you can't see are physically immature, but there's a spiritual immaturity where you said, I am following Christ. I am gonna be buried with him in death, raised to new life, and then something in life caused you to hit pause on Jesus as Lord. The invitation is open, friends. He invites you to repent. He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks and he says, let me in. Just repent. It may sound like, Lord, please forgive me for ignoring my responsibility to train myself. Please help me to practice prayer persistently. You don't need to say perfect words you need to begin practicing. Practicing prayer like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there may be even those among us this morning who have come because they heard that there's life-changing power available in these certain places. And it seems like it's a Sunday morning for most of them. And I want to assure you that that is available here the life change that is available to you is at work in each one of our lives. And you might have seen it when you've seen someone who didn't used to live like now they're living. And their life isn't perfect. You would never describe it that way. But you might say, I've seen a change in that life, and I know that the light that is in that heart is not from a human. That power is available to you, and the first step for you is to come forward today and say, I, I want to know how to have Christ in my life. Father God, would you help us to practice the ancient way of persistent prayer, just like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.